Ken and Mary, appreciate that. And again, we welcome all of you. We're glad to have you here. And uh, boy, I was a little concerned about this side over here. It was a little bleak for a while, but uh, it's looking better now. So glad to have you folks over here too. And I uh, hope you enjoy a great Mother's Day today. Uh, I do actually have a Mother's Day message today, somewhat. Uh, first time, I think, since I've been here. Usually I'm just preaching through some some uh, series or something, and we just keep right on going. But uh, somehow I just thought today this ought to be the day. And it's a struggle. It's hard, uh, for me at least, uh, when I think about uh, a Mother's Day message, I mean, most of them have been heard before, uh, some way or another. There's only so many mothers in the Bible, you know, and uh, you don't want to wear them thin, but yet you still want to honor mothers, and we're glad to have the ones we have here. we got two brand new ones. We have Natalie there and my daughter's uh, back in the nursery, I believe. Is that where she is? Yeah, I saw her here, yeah. So anyway... Um, we're glad that uh, we're able to do that and to look upon them with uh, really joy. Um, I was thankful that I was just searching around on the Internet and I discovered that I wasn't the only one that felt that way <laughs> about trying to come up with a Mother's Day message. So I, I felt in good company at least too. But it is really a day of celebration and the reason is because every one of us have a mother, and that's something that we can be thankful for. You know, we're all the product of our mothers. But this is a place where we can really celebrate, but, you know, there's a lot of places where moms are not celebrated. Kids have moms on drugs, alcohol. They're lying in a drug ward somewhere. You know, they're having to hoof it on their own on the streets, uh, just trying to survive, just trying to make it. And uh, it's not a great day for them. It's amazing what kids overcome. Some of them have been abandoned by their mom, given up, turned over for adoption or for one reason or another, and, um, or some just didn't want them. Others have killed their own children. And you wonder, how can those things be? How does it happen? You know, sometimes there's just family dissonance and mom and kids don't talk. Of course, Father's Day, we can say the same thing over and over, right? Same things. But they they just don't get along. They can go years, decades, and never speak to one another. So if you have an abiding relationship with your mom, it's a great thing, and it's a wonderful thing, and we need to cherish that. But of course, even there, Mother's Day is uh, a secular holiday. It's nothing that we are taught to observe in church, but yet we do it, and nothing wrong with that either. But, of course, like all other holidays, consumerism has basically destroyed it in a great degree. And I was reading about the founder or the one that is credited with 
establishing Mother's Day. Um, I was supposed to print the article off. I was going to read it to you, and then I forgot to do it. But it was an interesting thing. And out of devotion to her mother and a desire to remember her, uh, her name was Anna Reeves Jarvis, I think was her name, if I get that right. But she, um, and she may have been the mother that was being honored, and her daughter was named Anna. I, can't, I don't remember now for sure. Uh, Mom was Anne, and I think she was Anna. But nonetheless, when she made the push for a day to remember mothers, it was, of course, in honor of her mother. But within a short time, it was, of course, gone the consumerism route and the cards and the, you know, all the other things that went along with Mother's Day that we know today was beginning to take place. And this woman literally took her inheritance and spent every last dime she had fighting that in order that she could preserve the whole beauty and meaning of Mother's Day. And it wasn't Mother's, if I can say it that way, in other words, mothers with an apostrophe on the end, meaning all mothers, but she fought to keep it mothers with an apostrophe between the R and the S because she was wanting that day to be set aside to honor those who were truly mothers and fulfilled the role of motherhood and did what a mother should do, a biblical mother should do. And so it's very interesting to see what has happened and, and how it's all transpired and what it has become today. And, of course, that makes then in church spending time honoring mothers and speaking to that a worthwhile thing because it does then help to preserve the distinction as opposed to what we see going on in our culture and society today because it certainly has been taken apart and being destroyed and ruined. And so we want to do that today. And I'm, I really, all I've got here is some thoughts from Scripture. That's all I'm calling this. I'm calling it some thoughts about mothers and Mother's Day, or thoughts about mothers on Mother's Day. Um, so I want to look at a few things, though, and, and I really think they'll be meaningful. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 1, this, of course, being the the uh, key passage, where mothers came from, what brought it all about. And so in Genesis chapter 1, I want us to note just a concept here that I think is important for us to recognize even, even today and really see the beauty of it throughout the whole scope of Scripture. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26, it says there, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. I find it interesting there that he says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. He doesn't say man and woman, but he created man in his own image. And then he goes on to expand upon that and say male and female. He created them. And if you'll look over then to uh, chapter 2 at verse 18, And let's look at a more detailed account of what he says about this woman, this female that he's made. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And the point that I want to emphasize in this passage, a couple of them, is number one, In verse 19, it says, out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And of course, he made man out of the ground as well. But God's helpmeet didn't come out of the ground. She came out of his own flesh. And so if you were to just imagine, you know, if you could just Picture yourself being back there with Adam and Eve in the garden. And you had the privilege of being there and observing them. As you looked upon them, you know, you would not look upon two independently created creatures. One was a product of the other. And so as you were looking at Eve, you were seeing the flesh of Adam because he took Eve out of the flesh of Adam and it says there in verse 22 made he a woman and that word made is really the word it's it's in Hebrew it's the word built a woman he built a woman to be a helpmeet for the man. And what were they to do? Well, we find in verses 26 and 27 and 28 of chapter 1 that they were made to rule 
over the earth. They were to have dominion over everything. If you look at just a couple of chapters over, chapter 4 of Genesis... Verse 17, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. It says there, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city. That word builded there is the same word over here in chapter 2. He made a woman. He built her, fashioned her specifically for a purpose. And that really, really speaks volumes when you consider that each man and woman have a specific valued purpose in God's sight. There's a a reason why he made them the way he made them. Um, A further point, then, that I would make out of all this is that, of course, they're both said to be in the image of God. And that would stand to be. If Eve was made out of Adam's flesh and fashioned from him, then they would be both in the image of God and of one flesh. Consequently, he says back in chapter 2, therefore, before they even bore any children, apparently, he tells them that a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so when we get married, when we yoke together as a husband and wife, then we have a biblical picture of Adam and Eve, who were one flesh. And hopefully then, we would fulfill God's mandate and being rulers over his creation. Now, of course, biblically speaking, one day, those who have placed their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming rule over the earth and will share in his airship by being placed in positions of rulership because of their faithfulness will do exactly that. And it will be at a time when the perfect king is over the earth, will have a perfect government, and will have one which will render absolute justice. And we will be privileged to partner with the Lord Jesus in that rule. But that doesn't mean that we don't have that same responsibility now. We still can exercise our right, our privilege, and our mandate to be ruling over creation now as a child of God, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that by obedience to the principles that God has set forth in his word. Like, say, for instance, Exodus chapter 20, I think it's verse 12, children, Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. 
No, you can be obedient to them. Honor your father and your mother. We can do it in multitudes of ways of obedience to what God has laid out for us as children of his to honor him and do righteousness in the earth. Now, um, you know, then again, it's only possible for a man and a woman to be one flesh. Any other kind of union is a violation of that principle. And it's an abhorrence to God in his sight. And it doesn't work in our culture or in any culture. It does the Lord Jesus and God the Father a disservice when men or women yoke together in a marriage relationship. That's against God's word. And by the way, they don't reflect the image of God. They can't be one flesh. They also don't reflect the image of God when you do that. But a man and a woman, when they marry, do reflect the image of God, and they do reflect the one flesh of Adam and Eve. How does that all pan out? Well, there's a. this could take <laughs> months and months of messages to do that, but... I'm going to give you one verse. If you'll look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want us to look to a verse that speaks to this. As the ultimate outcome of a life lived of a man and a woman who have honored the Lord and sought to do so. Of course, obviously, we don't do so perfectly. Uh, but we seek to do so in obedience to him. First Peter 3 and verse 7. Now, of course, if you begin with verse 1, he's talking about wife and husband relationships there and um, how to handle this partic- particular situation about their adorning and so on. And if you look at verse 7, though, He says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wife, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. That's what we seek to do today. Everybody's got, well, not everybody has a wife, but everybody has a mother. And uh, most mothers appreciate that. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the grace that has life, the bestowal of life as its object. So that, in other words, you've honored, you've obeyed, you've done the things that are required And in the end, then God is able to bestow life as an outcome, as a result. You know, and and the word there for heirs, heirs together, is is literally it's joint heirs or co-heirs. Co-inheritors. 
And the reason I just jumped to this verse to sum it up is because in the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament as well, but it's brought out vividly in the New Testament, is that our ultimate outcome is that we might be co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 16 and 17 teaches us that. 2 Timothy 2, 12 teaches us that. That we hope, ultimately, that we will be a co-heir or a co-inheritor with Christ in the coming age or the age to come, as the scripture speaks of it. When the king of kings comes to rule the earth and to put his imprint upon the earth in a, in a finality, it will be life as it was meant to be. And so it's only a man and a woman married who can picture that and be a co-heir together just as Adam and Eve were meant to be rulers. Now, of course, the whole story of the Bible is they lost that privilege when they disobeyed God. And if you really think through that concept of Eve being Adam's flesh, it helps you understand why Adam willingly partook and succumbed along with Eve, and they lost their privilege of being rulers, of having that dominion that God created them for. And the story of redemption in the rest of the scriptures is about God bringing us back, making it possible that we can fulfill that mandate and be co-heirs once again and rulers once again. A couple of things I would, some of the things I would like to look at in Scripture that God does with respect to mothers, you know, and he's, his references to them, there's, there are several in Scripture, but how God uses them as a metaphor to teach us various things about himself. Now, of course, it's very popular to uh, refer to God these days as Mother God. People still do that. I was reading one person said, uh, why I will continue to in my prayers at, uh, or address in my prayers Father, Mother, God. It's, it's just incredible what is, what is out there in society and culture that you would never know about if it wasn't for the Internet, being able to find those things and look them up. God acts toward us in several ways with respect to the imagery of a mother. If you'll turn to Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66 and verse, uh, verses 12 and 13. So Isaiah 66, that's the last, the last chapter in Isaiah. So if you look at those two verses, Isaiah 66, verses 12 and 13. Now, of course, the context there is he's talking about Israel and how he's uh, going to treat her. 
But it tells us how God is doing this. He says in verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, that is to Israel, and the glory of the Gentiles, that's us, like a fledgling, or excuse me, like a flowing stream, then shall ye suck. Ye shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. So there is Israel, you'll be carried over here on the side, you know, or dandled upon the knees, carried about like a baby. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That word in verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, is the word for a man. It's the word all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 for Adam. Not the word for Adam, but the word for man, ish. As an ish, as a man, as a male child. Whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. And so the imagery there is God as a comforter who's going to comfort Israel in the same way. Where else would the Lord go to grab a picture of what it meant to comfort in the most tenderest of fashions than to go to a mother comforting her child? If you look over at, go back to the left a few pages to Isaiah 49 and verses 15 and 16. Of course, the context hasn't changed at all. We're still in Isaiah, still talking about the future promises that God is making towards Israel. And he uses this metaphor again. But here he says, can a woman forget, in verse 15, Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Talking about Zion. Talking about Jerusalem. And he's talking about his thoughts towards Israel and his people. And he uses this metaphor of a a mother with a baby feeding at her breast and saying, can she forget? Is it possible that she could forget to take care of feeding her baby? And of course, the obvious answer he's expecting there is why, of course not. And the Lord is telling us, well, then I'm not going to forget you either, Israel. I'm not going to forget Zion. I'm not even going to forget her walls. And I'm not going to forget you because I have you graven upon the palms of my hands. Now, we do things to help us remember things. And I don't think God really literally <laughs> means that he needs to do that. But there it is.
I'd like to know what that image looks like. If it's not the nail prints of Jesus, I don't know what it would be, what else it would be. To remind him of his promise to Israel. It's going to happen. And Israel is going to be restored. And she will be a nation one day again, leading the world. As the scripture says, she'll be the head. That's right. Not the tail, as she is right now. She'll be the head of the nations. That's going to be an awesome day, an awesome day upon the earth. Well, you know what? Then he also says he cherishes. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul uses that imagery when he's ministering to the folks at Thessalonica. And he says, I was with you as a nursing mother. So he pulls out this imagery himself of one who is nursing a child. Of course, here, the King James uses the word nurse, and it probably literally is more like a... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. He, he uses... He says there, well, let me just read the passage first. He says, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. And some think that, the, that, that he's using the metaphor of a nurse sitting in on behalf of a mother. But it's more the idea of a nursing mother. As a nursing mother cherishes her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you. Now, that's a pretty strong image that Paul is using towards the believers at Thessalonica when he ministered to them by drawing upon this metaphor of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her baby, cherishes. And he said, so we cherished you. And were affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. You know, Paul's just trying to get across how, how dear, how precious the people at Thessalonica were to him. And he pulls upon the picture of a nursing mother to do that. And then also, <clears throat> we got a, a couple others. Psalm 131 and verse 2. Now, we were in Psalm 133 Wednesday night for our Bible study. We're just going to back up a couple here to Psalm 131. And we can read the whole psalm here because it's three verses. And in this psalm, the psalmist says, this is David, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. 
Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Well, as mothers know, maybe dads too, uh, there's a little process you have to go through to wean a child from its mother. Sometimes not always a pleasant task. (laughs) They enjoy the closeness of their mom and getting them off on solid food. But the contentment, you know, David is pointing to the contentment that goes along with it once the process has become complete and that child is on solid food. And he says, surely I have behaved and quieted myself just like a weaned child, one that has been weaned from his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. And he's putting out a picture there for us of the picture of contentment, satisfaction. And then last one I want to look at, back over to the New Testament again in Luke chapter 13. And this isn't a human mother, although the application I think fits fairly well, because he picks on a mother, but he picks on a mother hen. A chicken. And he says in verse 34, Luke 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Speaking there, of course, of the unwillingness of Israel to acknowledge her Messiah. But the longing, on the other side, it's the longing on the part of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, to gather his children together and bring them under his care as any mother desires to do with her children and care for them and minister to them and provide for them. And, of course, in all of these examples, that's what we're looking at. And we could look at examples of others. You have the example of Jochebed with Moses. How she cared for him in spite of what the Pharaoh had said he would do and they must do to all the male children of Israel, of the Israelites. And yet she spared his life. Going down to the river getting some reeds, weaving a little basket, putting some pitch on it or tar so it could float, and then putting her baby in that basket and putting him out in the river, believing with all her soul that this was some special child and that God had his hand upon him. And, of course, we know from Scripture that was exactly what took place. And so she let her love and regard for God and for her child overcome her fear of Pharaoh and his decree. 
You also have <clears throat> over in 2 Samuel an interesting story. You may want to turn over there. We'll try to look just at a couple of verses to catch the whole idea there. But uh, in 2 Samuel, in chapter 21, you remember about the Gibeonites back in, in uh, Joshua's day and how they had deceived them, the Israelites, and how they had come under their wing and under their care while they were busy about destroying all the other Gentile nations around them. And, of course, they made their covenant. They lived within the confines of Israel all those years. Some, this you're talking probably close to around 400 years later or so, maybe a little bit more than that, 450 years later. Saul was on the scene. And Saul determines to go out and, and, and violate the covenant and kill him. And if you look at uh, chapter 21 and verse 2, it says, The king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now this is, this is after this event. Now this is all taking place. And now we have uh, David. And, he, and he, um, he calls the Gibeonites those surviving, and he said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. In other words, he thought that it would be better just to wipe them out and just disregard the covenant that Joshua and those before him had made with them. And so David then, in order to make amends or atonement, the word, the word in verse 3 there, atonement, David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you wherewith I shall make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? In other words, David wanted to make this thing right. And so they said, Well, you pick seven sons of Saul's and you slay them. And what I want to get to then is that all took place. Verse 13, he, he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, that is the seven, and the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin in, in uh, Zelah in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all that the king commanded. So they, they t finally buried them, but it's what happened in between that was such an interesting thing. Because it says in um, verse 8, The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bare unto Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the uh, Mahathalite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. Now notice what the rest of the verse says, and they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest. Well, when were the days of harvest? Well, that was early in the spring. That was in April. <clears throat> 
and in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven. In other words, till it rained. And she had, out of those seven, two were her sons. And she stayed there until it rained. She suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. When did it rain? Well, it didn't rain if you follow the seasons of what took place in Israel. You had the early barley harvest, and after that you had the wheat harvest, and you didn't have rains until the fall. You had what they called the the early rains. So you're talking six to seven months later. She stayed right there. And it says she kept the birds of the air from resting on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. Now, you talk about a devoted mother. That was an amazing thing. Amazing. But there's one more I want to share with you, and that's over in John chapter 19. <clears throat> John chapter 19, and of course, we, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I just want to mention a couple of things about this one, but the passage is pretty, it's very brief. It doesn't say much really to it, except that it says, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. And his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. But if you were to get a grasp of a picture of what a crucifixion looked like and what was in the eyes of Mary, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think about the cross. I don't know where I got this from, but I always had this image that, you know, it was something, you know, way up there. I don't know why. But it wasn't. It was something that was just a few feet off the ground. Six to eight feet, maybe or so, off the ground. So that as you walk, you know, the crowd that was standing around watching these three being crucified, I mean, you were right there, front row. You had a scene like you've never seen in your life. And all those descriptive things that it talks about that the soldiers did to Jesus and those two thieves, Mary and these women stood right there faithfully observing what was going on with her son. And I thought, what devotion there was in the heart of Mary to stay there and watch a Roman crucifixion take place. Because if you do any time at all studying what occurred, it was not a pretty sight. It was absolutely gruesome. But she remained by his side right to the very end. 
So all I'm saying then is that through these biblical examples is that the pictures that were drawn upon to depict for us devoted motherhood are very real and very inspiring to us. You know, I, I learned about the love of a mother. I didn't, I didn't really comprehend my mom's love for me till I was an adult. It came, and it came over the most simple, mundane thing you can imagine, a piece of chicken. See, all the time we were growing up as kids, um, you know, things were always set at the table. Everybody knew what everybody liked. My dad and I, we each liked the, the breast. So he got one, I got one. My brother liked the leg and the thigh. He liked the dark meat. My mom, who I always thought was the nutty one, she liked wings and things like that, the back. I just thought she was crazy. That's what I thought, How, you know, liking these funny pieces of meat off the chicken. And then as an adult, and I don't remember exactly how old I was. I just remember I was, I was an adult. <laughs> and somehow the subject came up, and they were, we were talking about it, about her favorite piece was the chicken breast. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it just blew me away that my mom all those years had sacrificed eating those other pieces of chicken so that I could have that chicken breast. And that rocked my boat. Because <laughs> I said, there is a mother's love. And I didn't even know it all those years. So kids, love your mom. She sacrifices a lot. A lot and does things that you'll never know to make life beautiful and joyful for you and pleasant and give you the comforts of life. And we've all been recipients of that, every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to lift up our hearts in gratitude and praise and thanksgiving for what you have done for each of us here today through the mothers you've given us and blessed us with. We thank you for the inspiration of mothers like these mentioned in Scripture who were devoted to having compassion for their child, cherishing their child, comforting their child, and doing those things that mothers do. We do pray, Father, that you would let us in, be in turn today filled with gratitude for them and express our gratitude for what you have given us through them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.